Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. On today's episode, I'm returning to the prequel era. It's Shatterpoint by Matthew Stover, part of the Clone Wars Publishing Initiative, released in 2003. Jedi Master Mace Windu heads to the planet Haroon Call to find his former Padawan, and what he finds is more terrible than he could ever imagine. But first, a little correction from my last episode. When talking about the Knight Sisters during the courtship of Princess Leia and comparing them to the Knight Sisters that have made their way into Star Wars canon, I said that there were no more Knight Sisters left, having been wiped out on the Clone Wars television show. Well, a few attentive listeners wrote in last week to let me know that the Knight Sisters live on. There's a Knight Sister in the Jedi Fallen Order video game, taking place shortly after the end of the Clone War, and another Knight Sister in the Star Wars mobile game Star Wars Uprising, which takes place shortly after the events of Return of the Jedi. So, thank you to Nico, Rusar, and Dan for correcting me. And thanks again to Rusar for pointing out that in The Courtship of Princess Leia, Luke does, in fact, use a blue lightsaber when he should have been using a green one at this point of the timeline. I didn't remember reading it in the book, but it is there. So, please, if I ever make a mistake on the show, let me know. Send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com, or you can send me a tweet at legendslounge1. I love learning more about Star Wars. Now, it's time for listener questions, my favorite part of the show. I have two questions today. The first comes from Josh. Josh says, in your opinion, how long, long ago does the original trilogy take place? Do you think Disney would ever cross over Star Wars and Marvel in some way? The current Tom Holland movies reference a fictional Star Wars, I've always speculated over the possibilities of both questions. Well, thank you for the question, Josh. They don't really have an answer, but they're fun to think about. I have no idea how long, long ago Star Wars takes place, but since it's in a galaxy far, far away, let's take a guess. The closest galaxy to our Milky Way is Draco 2 located in our local group of galaxies about 70,000 light years away. But if you remember at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, Luke and Leia are standing on home one, looking out over the ecliptic of a spiral galaxy, similar to the Milky Way. The closest spiral galaxy to us is the Andromeda galaxy, about 2.5 million light years away. So my best guess is that the events of the Star Wars saga took place about 2.5 million years ago. George Lucas just had access to one of those really powerful telescopes that us regular folks know nothing about. Now, Josh, to your second question. Do I think there will ever be a Star Wars Marvel crossover? No, but again, it's fun to think about. Imagine if Rey entered the world between worlds, stepped through one of the doors, and ended up in Wakanda. Or Doctor Strange, messing with the multiverse, pulls a squadron of TIE fighters to Earth. Pretty cool. I mean, I don't think it will ever happen, but never say never. In the 2004 comic, 
Star Wars Tales number 19, there was a short story where Han and Chewie crashed the Millennium Falcon on Earth in the Pacific Northwest. Han is killed by Native Americans, and his remains are discovered by Indiana Jones a century later. Chewie is able to escape the attack and flees into the woods, and he eventually becomes the inspiration for the stories about Sasquatch. Pretty wild. Today's second message comes from loyal listener Rusar Vareth. It's an audio message. Let's hear what Rusar has to say. Hello, everyone. So I was watching Star Wars Rebels the other day and realized that most of the characters do not know that Darth Vader even exists. So I was wondering, how well known is Vader in the galaxy? Like, does Dexter Jetster know about the existence of Vader in Legends or in Canon? Also, how does Obi-Wan learn that Anakin survived Mustafa and became Darth Vader? In Canon, I don't think he knows, at least before the Obi-Wan TV show, but do we know how he learned the truth in Legends? Thank you very much for the message, Rusar. I would say Darth Vader is more well-known throughout the galaxy in Legends than he is in Canon. In Legends, the Emperor sends Vader out on missions all the time, mostly to showcase Imperial strength and to instill fear in the populace. And Obi-Wan actually learns that Vader survived Mustafar only a few months after the duel took place. In the epilogue of the book Dark Lord, The Rise of Darth Vader by James Luceno, Obi-Wan follows the Lars family as they take baby Luke with them to a marketplace in Anchorhead. He stops in a cantina to buy a drink and sees a hollow news report about Darth Vader helping the Empire defeat the Wookiees at the Battle of Kashyyyk. It's a pretty harrowing moment in the book. Now, of course, we're all psyched for the Obi-Wan Kenobi show starting tomorrow to get the canon story of how Kenobi really learns how Anakin survived Mustafar. I know I can't wait. Thank you very much for the message, Rusar. If you want to be really cool like Rusar and Josh and would like to get a message read on the show, you can send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. Or you can record an audio message and email it to the show. Just please record it in MP3 or MP4 format. Now it's time for today's book, Shatterpoint by Matthew Stover, a Clone Wars novel. Grab yourself a drink and let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins in Palpatine's office. The Chancellor has called Jedi Masters Yoda and Mace Windu in to hear a voice message from Master Depa Balaba sent to the planet Haroon Call to lead an insurrection of guerrilla fighters against the planetary government, which is allied with Separatist forces. Balaba's voice is quiet, unsteady, and tinged with insanity. It seems that the horrors of war have gotten to her over the last few months. Mace is shocked to hear his former Padawan's message. Has she fallen to the dark side? Chancellor Palpatine offers to send a force to Haroon Call to search for Master Balaba and to reinforce the guerrillas, but Mace refuses. Depa is his former student, probably his closest friend. He intends to find Depa himself and bring her home. En route to Haroon Call, Mace dictates a journal 
talking about his feelings about his former Padawan and returning to his birth world. Harun Kal is a harsh, deadly place. The jungles are deadly. To survive, all the natives developed the ability to sense danger in the Force. Being more adept than others, Mace was found as an infant and taken to be raised and trained by the Jedi. Now, he's returning to a different world, one exploited by planetary settlers and separatist forces. When he lands in the capital of Pelic Ball, Mace finds members of the planetary militia bullying citizens, shaking them down for money. Mace stops the assault, but he's taken into custody and brought before Colonel Lors Gepton, the planet's security chief. Gepton complains about the attacks by the guerrillas on the jungle prospectors, attacks led by Depa Balaba. Mace tells the chief that if he lets him go, Mace will take care of Harun Kal's Jedi problem. Once free, Mace meets up with his Republic contact, an undercover intelligence officer named Tank. When the two turn down an alley towards Tank's safe house, the militia attacks. It's an ambush. Gepton had Mace followed. In the firefight, Tank is shot and killed. Mace is knocked unconscious. He's lifted and woken up by a militia officer when blaster fire erupts from the surrounding buildings. Four members of Depa's guerrilla fighters have snuck into the city, intent on ensuring Mace has safe passage from the capital through the jungle. The guerrillas rain destruction from their perches, killing the militia members and rescuing Mace. The four guerrillas are named Nick, Chalk, and Besh and Lesh, two brothers. The group heads off into the jungle, riding grassers, large, six-legged mammals that feed on jungle plants and bark. The Kurunai tend to the grassers, their source of meat, milk, fur, and cleared land. As they amble along, Nick tells Mace about the summertime war, the war between the Kurunai natives and the Balawai settlers. It's not a new war. It's been going on for years. The Balawai harvest thistle bark and spices to export off-world, some of the stuff the grassers eat. Nick says the summertime war began when a group of Balawai killed a small herd of grassers. In retaliation, that Karunai tribe attacked a Balawai settlement, setting off the events that have continued for decades. It's called the summertime war because summer is the only season on Harun Kal where the weather is good enough for Balawai to head into the jungle to harvest their spices and for the Kurunai to lead their herds down from the highlands to more fertile feeding grounds. At the start of the Clone War a few months ago, the Balawai settlers asked members of the Separatist Alliance for help fighting the Kurunai and agreed to join the Confederacy. The trek through the jungles is slow, and soon the group is harassed from the air by a Balawai gunship. They're able to keep eluding the ship, using the jungle canopy to hide. One night while they rest, Mace awakens to find Lesh standing over him, talking strangely. The Jedi Master grabs his lightsaber, but Lesh sounds more depressed and manic than aggressive. Eventually, Lesh turns to leave, and Mace gets a vision. Lesh will be dead by tomorrow. The gunship attacks again the next day but this time the group is out in the open. Mace uses his lightsaber to block the ship's blasters, while Nick and Chalk fire back. The group manages to destroy the ship, 
But there are casualties. Chalk is wounded. And they find Besh holding Lesh, who's convulsing, but without any visible wounds. He's infected, Nick says, by the wasp larvae in the thistle bark that Lesh is always chewing. They migrate to the host's brain as they feed. There's nothing to do for Lesh but to put him out of his misery. The remaining members of the group scan each other to see if the infection has spread. Mace and Nick are clean, but Chalk and Besh register positive. They only have a day or two left to live. Nick says the only thing to do is to put them in a state of hibernation while he goes forward to find help. Nick says there's an abandoned Balawai settlement close by where Mace can guard the two while he continues on to the Kurunai camp. At the camp, the four arrive to find a horror show. Dozens of Korunai bodies lay about, including women, children, and the elderly, many of them unrecognizable. It's a massacre, Mace says. It's just war, Nick replies. They clear the one small building and put Besh and Chalk into medically-induced hibernation. Then, Nick heads off to the Korunai camp. Alone, Mace decides to bury the bodies to give them peace. As he finishes, he hears children screaming, terrified. Mace heads into the jungle and finds a Balawai crawler upside down in a huge ditch and slowly filling with water. Inside, he finds four children and a teenage boy. Mace helps the five out of the crawler, but the boy tries to attack him. Mace is Kurunai, he says. We know what will happen to us if we're taken prisoner by Korunai. But Mace talks the boy down, telling him, I'm not Korunai, I'm a Jedi. Mace leads the children up the slope to the camp, but as they approach the building, Mace feels something wrong. He turns, looking out into the jungle twilight. Quickly, Mace ushers the children inside the building as dark shapes emerge from the jungle. It's a small group of Balawai prospectors, and they're searching for the children. They're safe, Mace says, but you'll have to leave. Something dangerous is out there in the jungle, and it's coming closer. The group refuses, accusing Mace of trying to steal the kids. Mace pleads with the Balawai to leave, but it's too little, too late. As the two sides argue, a group of Kurunai guerrillas emerge from the jungle led by Kar Vastor, the Lore Pelek. With the Balawai trapped in the middle of the camp, the guerrillas attack from all sides, slicing and stabbing with their shield blades. The fighting is gruesome, and soon, Mace jumps into the fray to protect the settlers. A few of the Balawai are able to escape into the jungle, but Mace sees Kar Vastor head into the building where the kids and Besh and Chalk are hiding. Quickly, Mace follows the Lore Pelek, and runs into a nightmare. Inside the building, Mace finds Vastor holding the teenage boy by the neck. In the boy's hand is a bloody knife, and on the floor, Besh's body, covered in blood and ichor, his abdomen eviscerated. The four younger children are huddled, terrified in the corner. As Vastor tells Mace, the boy must be executed for his crimes. Mace orders Vastor to stop, but it's too late. The Lord Pelek lifts his shield blade and slices the boy open from chest to waist, killing him. Quickly, 
Mace runs to protect the other four children, but Vastor turns to leave. He tells Mace that he was ordered by Depa Balaba to bring Mace to her. Vastor's men round up the Balawai that had fled into the jungle, taking them captive along with the four children. Vastor takes Mace to the Kurunai camp. Finally, Mace has found Jedi Master Depa Balaba, but she's not the woman Mace remembers from four months ago. Depa is gaunt, almost emaciated. Her eyes are sunken. Her forehead is scarred where she's removed her jewel. She's weak, and there's an air of darkness surrounding her. Mace tells Depa he's relieving her of command of the gorillas. He's placing her under arrest for war crimes and taking her back to Coruscant. Sadly, Depa just shakes her head. You don't understand, she tells Mace. This isn't about the Republic and the Separatists. On Harun Call, the summertime war is the way of life. If she leaves, the Kurunai will be wiped out, or Carvastor will destroy Balawai settlements. Still, Mace takes Depa into custody, but the Lor Pelek will not allow him to leave. Mace challenges Vastor to a fight, but Mace is half the man's size and twice his age. The Jedi Master gets in some good shots, but eventually, the bigger, stronger, younger man wins, knocking Mace unconscious. When he awakes, Mace tells Nick that he has a plan to arrest Depa and to end the summertime war. Mace is able to get a message to the Republic assault ship in orbit calling for an extraction, but the ship is under attack from droid starfighters. Gepton's separatist allies are here. Mace orders the ship to deploy landers and flee to hyperspace. The droid fighters follow the landers down to the surface, destroying several before they can deploy their clone soldiers. Mace tells Depa and Vastor he has a plan to defeat the fighters, but they have to take the capital. Mace and Vastor use a stampede of grassers to crush a regiment of the Balawai militia, clearing a path to Pelic Ball. The Republic landers set down in the city, and the clone soldiers take the spaceport. Mace orders the clones to hold the facility, while he takes Nick and a small clone force to arrest Colonel Gepton. However, when Mace arrives, he offers Gepton a deal. Shut down the droid starfighters, and surrender the planet to the Republic. And Mace will take Depa Balaba and Carvastor into custody. Reluctantly, Gepton agrees. As they head back to the spaceport, Mace calms the clone forces about what has happened, but there's no answer. They're dead, Mace says. Depa and Vastor have killed them. Mace and Nick lead Gepton and their small group of clones into the spaceport. They attack the Kurunai while Gepton shuts down the droid starfighters. The fighting is fierce, but short. In the end, the clones are killed. Mace is injured, but defeats Depa Balaba, seriously wounding her. And Carvastor is stopped from killing Mace by a wounded Nick Rostu. The story ends a few weeks later, after Mace has taken Nick Vastor and Depa Balaba back to Coruscant. Nick is commissioned into the Grand Army of the Republic. 
Fastor is waiting to stand trial for war crimes, while Depa has been submerged in a bacta tank at the Jedi Temple. In the weeks since her return, her physical wounds have healed, but she remains unresponsive. The temple healers tell Mace her mind is trapped in darkness. Mace thinks to himself that she's trapped because she was fighting the wrong war, and so are all of the Jedi. If the Jedi continue to fight for the Republic, Mace thinks, they'll lose themselves, because the Separatists aren't the real enemies of the Jedi. The real enemy is the darkness. Time for a break. When we come back, I'll talk more about Shatterpoint by Matthew Stover, the book's influences, and what works and doesn't work for me. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we talk about the books from Star Wars Legends. But allow me to recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Battlefront II Inferno Squad tells the story of Imperial Lieutenant Iden Versio. Tasked with finding and destroying what remains of Saul Guerrera's terrorist organization, Inferno Squad must infiltrate the Partisans before they're discovered and eliminated. It's a tale of action and espionage. That's Battlefront 2 Inferno Squad by Christy Golden. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes, and today I'm talking about Shatterpoint by Matthew Stover, part of the Clone Wars Publishing Initiative. As I've said before, one of the things I really like about Legends is there are a lot of different genres of storytelling throughout the timeline. You have your normal Star Wars adventure serial, like the old Flash Gordon serials of the 30s and 40s that inspired George Lucas. You have detective-type stories. You have character studies. You have horror stories, and in Shatterpoint, you have a gritty war story. You have a gritty war story where nobody is the good guy. Everyone is the bad guy. Throughout the story, Mace keeps a journal where he keeps thinking about what Depa Balaba is doing, how this isn't the way of the Jedi. And as the story goes on, he broadens that to think about the Clone Wars as a whole. Should the Jedi be fighting the Clone War? Of course, we know the answer is absolutely not. In Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, Mace keeps talking about how the Force is clouded, that the Jedi aren't able to see things correctly because... A darkness is rising. The Mace Windu of this story seems more introspective to me than the Mace Windu of the movies. It almost doesn't seem like the same character at times. The Mace Windu of Shatterpoint comes to realize that the Jedi should not be fighting for the Republic. 
rather than simply trying to stop Darth Tyrannus and keep peace on the worlds throughout the galaxy, trying to stop both the Separatists and the Grand Army of the Republic from fighting each other, we know, of course, the Jedi are basically commissioned as generals for the clone forces. The Mace Windu of Shatterpoint comes to believe that this is a bad idea. I wish we had more of that in episodes two and three. We got it once or twice, mostly with Yoda. I wish we got it more with the other members of the Jedi Council or other Jedi that didn't agree with the Jedi Council. Now, I say I wish we had that, but George Lucas specifically wanted to show how the Jedi organization lost their way and were taken down by their own hubris. So I'm not going to complain about it because that's the story that Lucas wanted to tell. I just think it would have been interesting throughout the second and third movie if we would have got a little more introspection from some of the Jedi thinking that it was a bad idea to fight for the Republic. Now, when Matthew Stover wrote this book, he cited Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness novella and Apocalypse Now, the Francis Ford Coppola film, as his inspirations that he wanted to tell that type of gritty, disgusting war story where basically no difference between civilization and native peoples. Now, I've never read Heart of Darkness. I can't talk to the novella, but I have seen Apocalypse Now, and I know that Apocalypse Now was based on that story. If that was Stover's inspiration, I will say he pretty much nailed it. The Koronai natives and the Balawai settlers are both savages toward each other. They kill indiscriminately. You know, they don't just destroy each other's military forces. They kill civilians, women, children, the elderly, the infirmed. They wipe settlements out. You can see how the darkness has taken its toll on Depa Balaba. In just the four months she's been there, this is all Harun Call is to her. It's nothing but darkness. It's nothing but war. It doesn't matter if one side is backed by the Republic and the other side is backed by the Confederation of Independent Planets. 
They're just the two factions that have shown up in the last four months. The summertime war between the natives and the settlers has been going on for decades. And Depa has come to believe that it's never going to stop. That she is doing terrible things. She is ordering the deaths of settlers basically to keep the war as civilized as possible because she knows if she leaves, both sides are going to wipe each other out. I give Matthew Stover credit for taking an immense swing. I love when storytellers take a chance. The big swings, sometimes they connect and it's a home run. Sometimes you strike out. As much as I admire the story Stover has written, one premise that George Lucas has said should always be in Star Wars is an element of hope. Because George said it, I believe that every story in Star Wars should contain some of that. That is the one thing that I did not find in Shatterpoint. I thought the action was riveting. I thought some of the dirty details of war was fascinating. The plot was gripping. It was one of those stories that makes you feel uneasy, but you don't want to put it down. Stover deserves a lot of credit for making this story, for trying to show the ugliness, the grittiness, the horrors of war, where neither side has clean hands. But I wish he would have put that little glimmer of hope, of Star Wars hope, in the story. Maybe in his mind he did. I just didn't see it. And for that, I just got to knock this down slightly in my own estimations as to what level I would put it on in canon. It is not, in my opinion, must read. It's just below the legend stories that everyone has to read in order to get a feel for what legends is. However, if this is the type of story that you like, By all means, it is thrilling. It is engrossing. I thought it started a little slowly. It took me about 40 to 50 pages to get really into the story. But once Mace was rescued in Haroon Call's capital city by the guerrillas led by Nick Rostu, the book just flew by for me after that. As dark and as depressing and as heinous as the book is, it's thrilling. I must have read the last 300 and some odd pages in about four days, maybe five days. It was really that well written and that good of a book. One little thing about this story that's not really about Shatterpoint, 
but it's about the character of Depa Balaba. The only time we see Depa in live action is in Attack of the Clones, where she is sitting in the Jedi Council. She doesn't say anything. She's not at the Battle of Geonosis, at least as far as I can tell, trying to see all of the different Jedi there. I do not see Depa Balaba. In all the legend stories, be it Shatterpoint or the various comics, she has a green lightsaber. In canon, the first time we see Depa with a lightsaber is in the Kanan Jarrus comic book. She has a green lightsaber. However, in the first episode of The Bad Batch, Depa has a blue lightsaber. I guess what's on the screen does trump whatever is in a novel or a comic book. I just find it odd that every time we've seen Depa Balaba before that episode of The Bad Batch, she was using a green lightsaber. I just think it's odd that they changed her lightsaber color for The Bad Batch television show. We all know that Legends, the continuity is way out the window when it comes to Legends. But I really did like when they announced that the story group was going to oversee continuity in canon. Changing Depa Balaba's lightsaber color from the Kanan Jarrus comic book, which is canon, to the lightsaber she has in the Bad Batch, just, I don't know, irks me just a little bit. It's nothing big. It just irks me a little. One last thing before I go. I found another thing in a Star Wars book from our real world that probably shouldn't be in a Star Wars book. When the Kurunai guerrillas attack a Balawai militia tank, they destroy the big tank gun. And Mace describes the gun peeling back like an exploding cigar. Should they have exploding cigars in Star Wars? I don't know. That description just seemed a little weird to me. Well, time to wrap up. If you have a question or comment for the show, send me an email at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or a tweet at legendslounge1. I'd love to hear from you. Or if you want to get your voice on the show, you can record a three to five minute audio file and email it to swlegendslounge at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Just record it in MP3 or MP4 format, please. Now, coming up on the next episode, it's another installment from Timothy Zahn, one of the most popular Star Wars authors in both Legends and in canon. It's Allegiance, a story about a group of stormtroopers who desert from the Empire, featuring the Emperor's Hand herself, Mara Jade. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends. <laughs>